I want to say welcome again to people who are visiting, especially college students and some high school students have graduated to college and moved to the appropriate part of our sanctuary. <laughs> I've noticed that. We're glad you're here, and if you're here as a visitor, we'd want you to I'd want you to know a couple of things. Number one, first, that we place a high priority on the Bible. And so it's important on every sermon that you have a Bible open or a device open. And so if you don't have uh, something that you can read your Bible and follow along as I teach, then there's a Bible in front of you that you can use. And if you don't have a readable Bible, there's one at the information table that we'll give to you and you can take home with you. And second, we're in the middle of a series that's going to end in a couple more weeks <clears throat> before we start a new series after Labor Day, and that series is in Romans 8. We've spent the whole summer just looking at this one chapter that a lot of theologians consider the greatest chapter in the whole Bible, and we're here kind of in the middle. We're going to look at verses 18 through 25 this week and really take those into next week as well. So I want to do a little review before we actually get to these few verses, 18 through 25. First of all, the, the whole chapter is written primarily to give confidence to the believer in their salvation. And it opens sort of grandly with what we've called the Emancipation Proclamation. It starts with Paul standing up on the biggest stage shouting, there is now no condemnation. That's, the, that's great news. That whatever you have done, whatever you are going to do, you're not going to be condemned by it. You've been set free. The chapter in, begins with no condemnation and it ends in verse 39 with no separation. So really all the content in between is just to, to fan the, the flames of encouragement of your faith. To say God's really done something. He's, you can really trust in it even in the di most difficult circumstances. And the reason we feel so confident about this no condemnation comes from the first phrase of verse 3, and that is, for God has done. The reason there's no condemnation is because God, God did something. He did something at the cross. And that's our confidence. Isn't that great news that your condemnation isn't based on you? I'm so glad my uh, final judgment isn't based on me trying to fix myself or do enough. It's all based on God. So that's the good news. Nobody enters into heaven because of the good things that they've done. Everybody gets into heaven and it's open to anyone if they trust in what God has done. That's the gospel. That's the gospel. That's what we talk about here over and over again. Now, if you believe this, as we're reading through Romans 8, if you've trusted in what God has done, then he basically turns your life upside down. And it begins with a different mindset. You see that in verse 5. Your mind shifts. Your mind was, was going down this road full of worldly desires. But something's happened. God's done something to your heart. And it doesn't happen all at once. I wish it did. But slowly your desires, your appetites, your loves begin to change. And instead of focusing on these things, you begin to focus on other things. And probably many of you in this room can remember times where 
you started reading the Bible, you're like, I can't believe I've been, I've been reading this the whole time, or I've been hearing this, or I never knew this. And you feel like you're, you're at a buffet and you just can't get enough of it. And that's the Holy Spirit really working in, in you to give you an appetite for something you didn't have previously. And when your appetites change, your habits change. When your appetites change, your habits change. And so you actually begin to purposely put to death the misdeeds of the body. You realize it's not just stuff I think about. It's stuff that I do. It's habits that I have. And I have to rein those in. I have to put boundaries on that. I have to stop doing some things. I have to start doing things. But if you, I really want you to hear this. If you start at that spot and think that's the gospel, you're going to be a depressed Christian your whole life. That's not good news, that you need to stop things and start things. That's a self-help seminar. And I'm not saying it wouldn't be helpful for you to stop things and start things, but that's not the starting point of the gospel. The starting point of the gospel is what God has done. Now that we know that, now that we trust that, now that our appetites begin to change, then we work on our habits. And we know that some of our habits are going to change easily, but many of them are real enemies. And so your fight feels more like a war. It's a a fight to the death. But we do that and we know as those things happen, the spirit himself now, verse verse 16, as those things happen, the spirit, the Holy Spirit, the, the third person of the Trinity that now lives in us begins to witness to us, our spirit, And to say, you know what, Paul, you really are a child of God. You've trusted in Christ. Your your mindsets begin to change. I can see you working on these habits, and it's like a testimony. He he testifies to me that even though still imperfectly, you're working towards these things. And he uses that to encourage me to say, you're a child of God. And then a truly unbelievable verse, verse 17, because you're a child of God, You're an heir of God. Incredible. I mean, I realize you just read through it and you move on and you think about lunch, but I mean, don't. I mean, this this is more incredible than your lunch, I promise you. That you, you could just stay and live in this little moment that you and I, if you've trusted in in Jesus, you are an heir of God of God. You are a co-heir with Christ. I mean, I couldn't possibly say that if it wasn't already written down. And that that's the best news. It's beyond what we can possibly imagine. And oh, how I wish verse 17 ended with the words, with Christ, don't you? And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, period. Oh, I want a period right there. I just want to say, great, there's no condemnation because what God has done, his Holy Spirit is working in me. I see changes and I get an inheritance, period. I would just love that. But look closely. Fellow heirs with Christ, comma, okay. Very important. Provided, okay, so something else is coming up. Provided we, what's the word? 
suffer. All these things are true. Paul wants to make sure you know all these things. But he really wants to look at you this morning or me this morning and say, all these great things are true. And something has happened to you on this planet that's going to work out for good in ways you can't possibly imagine. Please live in that moment. But know as you walk towards the end, there's a road between that moment and glory. And that road has a name. It's called suffering. Paul doesn't want people to get caught off guard. He doesn't want to be, them to be surprised by suffering as if you'd say, well, I gave my life to Christ and now everything should work out for good right now. And he's saying, no, it's, not going to, it's going to work out for good in the end, but it's not going to all work out for good right now. This, this one little phrase totally derails the prosperity gospel. And we'll talk about that at different points, but it couldn't be any more clear than this right here. Provided that Paul is talking after the resurrection. So he's saying, yes, there is a road for people who live with Jesus after the resurrection. And that is, you're going to get so many great things. God's already done so many great things. But you're going to be on this road between here and there. And that road is going to be marked with suffering. And of course, really, I don't have to tell you all this. But suffering can be a real derailer. Real moment of disillusionment I mean you say it when you're not suffering yeah I know I'm going to suffer but when you get into suffering why am I suffering I mean this is what happens it shrink it shrinks your world down to to one little moment and you can't seem to get out of that little frame and it, it really can derail your faith because people who follow Christ have life-threatening diseases I've sat with a woman who's at her bedside of her son who's not going to make it. I've talked to people who've lost all their money in a bad investment. They face some ongoing injustice that's not going to change, at least in their lifetime. They get frustrated because they're not married. They get frustrated because they're married and they can't have a child. They get frustrated that they got married and had a child. I mean, you know, it's just the whole thing. (laughs) All this stuff is going to happen. And it can be a real derailer. And Paul comes in as a great pastor to say, I understand this can be a derailer. So I want to stop right here in verse 17. And then for the next 10 verses or 12 verses, I want to talk about suffering. Because I really don't want you to get derailed by suffering. So he turns his attention. Now that was just a really long introduction to the sermon. (laughs) All right. So let's stand together and read verse 18 through 25. For I consider that the sufferings, the sufferings that he's just told us about, 
of this present time that we are going to experience right now, they're real, but they're not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will will one day be set free from its bondage to decay and it's going to obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning, groaning together in the pains of childbirth until right now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, we, we who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we also groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoptions our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he has seen? But if we hope for what we do not yet see, we wait for it with patience. You may be seated. Let's take a moment together to reflect on God's word. I realize this... um, did I go to the store and seeing a sign two for one? You're like, I was going to buy that anyway, but I got another one. That's what today is, two for one. Because some of you are saying, that sort of felt like a sermon right there. And now he's going to get the sermon. So today is your lucky day. It's two for one. Some of you know the story of uh, John Wesley, the founder of the Methodist Church. In 1735, he was a young missionary, and he got called by a group of people to go to the United States, or what would become the United States. And there was this little colony called the Colony of Georgia. And in this colony, there were English settlers, and then there were Indians around. And so he was a minister, and he was called to to minister to the English settlers and also try to preach the gospel to the, the Native Americans at that point. So he got aboard a ship with... 80 other English colonists who were going to go make America or what would become America their home. 26 of those were Moravians. The Moravians are a group of Christians. They're very serious about their Christianity. And they they were from an area in Eastern Europe called Moravia. So that's why they are called the Moravians. And one night on the voyage, the Moravians started singing. They always would sing in the evening time. But it was a time when a a great storm came upon the ship. And and one wave was so massive, it just felt like it was going to swallow the ship whole. So it washed over the ship. It broke the mainsail. And then like a waterfall, water just started streaming down into the bottom parts of the ship where... Wesley and the other English colonists and the Moravians were. And all of the colonists, including Wesley, were just screaming. It's pitch black, water's pouring in. They're screaming. You can imagine this. And he notices while he's panicking and he's screaming, the 26 Moravians are still singing. And he couldn't believe it. He was just stunned. How in the world can you keep singing? Our mainsail is gone. It feels like we're drowning and going to sink, and you're still singing. Well, after the storm passed, he asked the Moravians, 
Were you afraid? Were your women and children not afraid? Here's their answer. No. We're really not afraid to die. And Wesley was stunned. And he realized at that moment, whatever they had, he didn't have. And he really found out that he wasn't even a Christian. Here he was, a pastor, going to new missionaries, be a missionary. And he didn't become a Christian until he sailed back to England. And a lot of it was because he was marked by these people whose, whose wave had crashed over their life, had broken the mainsail of their dream, and they kept singing. And he couldn't believe it. And he wanted to know, what do they have? What kind of foundation are they grounded on so when the worst things happen, they can keep singing? And that's my question for you. When the world seems to swallow you up, when a wave from the world breaks your dream in half, when, when it starts flooding in and you feel like, I'm not going to be able to breathe anymore. Can you still sing at that moment? Well, Paul understands this wave is going to crash on every life of every believer. It's going to come in some form. And he wants to make sure when that happens, when that suffering happens, he wants to make sure you have all the tools in your tool belt. And we'll talk about some of them this week and some of them next week to say, here are all the things that you want to rely on or do or have available so that when that time comes, when that, that wave breaks over your life and breaks your dream in half, you have some way to stand and to sing. So that's what I want to look at really this week and next week. So Paul's first point, you see it right here in verse 18. The first thing he wants us to do is to consider. For I consider, that's an important word. I consider. He wants to make sure that we have the right perspective when this suffering happens. And what does he say? This word consider, it means to take inventory or to think things through to the very end. To take an inventory or think things through to the very end. So just think about that. You're, you're considering, you're taking inventory. You understand that you're in a grocery store and you look at the grocery store or a department store and you look and say, well, what's on the shelf right now? What's on this rack right now? Well, that might not be the whole inventory. That's just what you see right here. But you say, hey, that's not my size or my color. Do you have anything else? What? In the back, do you have anything at the, the warehouse? And that's what Paul's saying. Hey, when you look at your shelf right now, it might be completely empty. But that's not all you have. You have an incredible warehouse of God's glory. And he doesn't want you to get totally stuck on the empty shelf now without considering the massive reality of this warehouse of God's glory that's coming at you at great speed. So he wants you to consider that. He wants you to see things through all of the way to the very end. Now, this is so important because I've said this before, but when you get into pain, I call it, you get into the frame of pain. Meaning your whole life is shrunk down to this one moment. In a very simple illustration, you hit your thumb with a hammer hard. 
your whole body is now on your thumb, right? I mean, you don't care about anything else but right here, right now. And that's what happens with pain. Everything gets shrunk down to this moment, and then you live in this moment, and what you and I do, at least I do, and I think most of you do, you take that moment and say, this is the rest of my life. (laughs) And you stretch that frame of pain as if I'm never going to get out of this frame. But your life isn't a frame, it's a film. And that's what Paul wants us to understand is, yes, you might be in a frame of pain right now, but I want you to consider something. Your whole life isn't a frame, it's a whole film. And I want you to see this film of God's glory coming at you at great speed so that you can live in a frame of pain and still sing. You're not singing about the moment of pain you're in, You're singing because you've considered the film that's going to run out for all of eternity. So first thing he wants us to do, when you get into this, you're going to need these tools. You're going to need to take inventory. You're going to need to to think things through to the very end. The sufferings of this present time. See, Paul's not overlooking them. He's not saying they're not real. He's not telling you to block them out or minimize them. He's saying there are sufferings in this present time. They're going to hurt. They're going to be discouraging. But I I don't want them to be derailing because it's just the sufferings of this present time. Because there's going to be a glory. This is the whole film strip. The glory that is to be revealed in us. Now, there's no way to even describe this, so let me just read a brief description from the book of Revelation. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. And he is going to wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death, no more mourning, no more crying, no more pain. For the old order of things have passed away. Praise God. The city, the city doesn't even need a sun or a moon to shine because the glory of God is giving it light. And the Lamb of God, who is Jesus, is its lamp. No longer will there be any curse. You will see God's face. There will be no more night. And you will reign with God forever. That's that's something you need to know where it's in your Bible. Because when you get into the frame of pain, when you look at your current inventory and it looks empty, you need to consider this is coming your way at great speed. And that helps you stand. It helps you sing even through suffering. How you experience your present circumstances is largely shaped by what you consider your ultimate future to be. How you think about your present circumstances is largely shaped by what you think your future is going to be. See, when you get in the frame of pain... Your future is inside this frame. But if you can say, I know this hurts right now. And I can't change that pain right now. 
But that's not all. There's some glory out here that's coming my way so I can live in pain, in suffering. Second thing you just need to be aware of, you need Paul's providing help. One, one is take an inventory, consider. Secondly, notice this word groaning. Two things are groaning. Verse 22, the whole creation is groaning. Secondly, verse 23, well, not just the creation, but we ourselves, we're part of this creation. We are groaning. And again, he's trying to, he's trying to make sure, hey, guys, you're going to groan. Just don't be caught off guard. Don't be, don't be surprised when there's groaning that comes your way from the creation or comes from you. Suffering is coming. He's, he's not trying to say, provided that we suffer, so go out and suffer. That's not what he's saying. Because you might think, well, provided I'm supposed to go out and be a martyr and I'm supposed to have all these suffering moments. That's not what he's saying. He's just saying you are going to suffer. You don't have to go find it. Guess what? It's coming to you. And then when it happens, I just don't want you to be caught off guard. And here's what I want you to do. And to, first of all, it's to, to understand that the creation is groaning. And so Paul tells us something very important theologically uh, in these verses 19 through 23. The creation itself has been subjected to frustration or futility. Now, if you're a member of Christ Community Church, you know the answer to this. When did this happen? Genesis, everything happened in Genesis, everything bad happened in Genesis chapter, two, chapter 3. Adam is at the top of the created order, the biblical worldview. And everything is tethered to Adam and Eve. So when he falls, think of a rope pulling creation off itself. So everything falls when Adam falls. And now not only is Adam and Eve corrupt, they have corruption and sin in their heart, the whole creation is corrupt. And so we have hurricanes, we have floods, we have famines, we have viruses, we have earthquakes. These are all part of God's judicial decree of how man and creation are connected. Now listen to how John Piper describes this. This is helpful for you, I think, and helpful for me. The meaning of all the misery in the world, the meaning of all the misery in the world, so a tsunami happens several years ago. 250,000 people died. Just like that. The meaning of all the misery in the world is that sin is horrific. All natural evil is a statement about the horror of moral evil. If you see suffering in the world that is unspeakably horrible, let it make you shudder at how unspeakably horrible sin is against an infinite holy God. Unless you have some sense of the infinite holiness of God and the unspeakable outrage of sin against God, you're inevitably going to see suffering in the universe as an overreaction. You ever felt that way? I mean, come on, it's this overreaction. Why does this have to happen? If you have that feeling, you need to go back and somehow really understand what sin is and how holy God is. Groaning, 
groaning teaches us the horror of sin and the preciousness of redemption and hope. So creation, Paul's telling us, is tethered to Adam's fall. And so it's groaning. But also verse 23, we're groaning. We ourselves, it's very emphatic in the Greek. We ourselves. It's not we are groaning, but we ourselves. I want to make sure you understand you you, Paul Phillips, you have the first fruits of the Spirit. Guess what? You're going to groan. You're going to groan. Paul's emphasizing this reality, and one reason he's emphasizing it is not to, so you won't be caught off guard, but one day you might run into a Christian wacko. And the Christian wacko is going to say something like this because I've had a person say this to me. If you really had the Holy Spirit... If you really had a prayer of faith, you wouldn't be groaning. That's a lie. That is a, I think the person was well-meaning, but that is a lie. And that crushes somebody's spirit. And Paul understands that. He doesn't want you to get around that person and say, hey, you shouldn't be groaning. No, it says it in the Bible. You're going to groan. So I'm going to go with the Apostle Paul and not you, Christian wacko, right now. I wish I had said that right at that moment, (laughs) but maybe other things would have tumbled out of my mouth that would have been edifying. I don't know. So we're going to groan. We're going to groan, but we're going to wait. Verse 23. We're going to wait until our bodies are completely redeemed. We're going to wait in eager expectation. I want you to take away two really beautiful images here about this groaning. Number one, verse 19, the creation waits in eager longing for what? What's the creation waiting on? If the creation was tethered to Adam, what is it waiting on? It's waiting on a new Adam and new sons of men to come and daughters of men to come back in and to be redeemed. And it's going to come with us, like a, again, like a reverse tether. It's going to come back into the way it's supposed to be. I had a great opportunity, maybe seven years ago, I went to Africa to do a pastor's conference. And while I was there, me and my, my two friends, we went on this three-day safari. We're in Kenya. And it was really super cool. But what was the, the, the most beautiful moment is we came around a big grove of trees out into this really, really wide plain. I mean, as, as wide as you could see. And in this moment, we're standing, you know, through the roof of one of these safari jeeps. And it looked like all of, it looked like Noah's Ark had unloaded right in front of us. And it was just hundreds of gazelles just all grazing in this high grass. And some warthogs got afraid and they ran across this road. And in a tree, you could see a big cat. His tail was hanging down in a little curl. There was a stream kind of running through and all these giraffes had gathered at the stream. And just past that stream, there was a big herd of elephants. And then just past that is a, was a big mountain range. You could only just see the darkness of the horizon. And we just all stood there like trying to absorb it all in one moment. It was too big. And as we slowly drove sort of through that and we got near any animal group, what did they all do? 
They all looked up at us. And this is what I felt like they were saying. Hey, we're all waiting on you. We're all waiting on the sons of God and the women of God to be revealed. And we're stuck. We're stuck because of you, Adam. And we're stuck. But when, when you get glorified, the creation is going to jump into that glory. And it's going to be so incredible, you're not even going to be able to believe it. See, when you, when you think about that thing, when you think about that kind of beauty... When you meditate on that, when you're in your frame of pain, it helps you to stand. That you're, you're being redeemed. You're pulling all of creation into this wonderful glory with you. Isn't that great? The other thing is very purposeful, the analogy that Paul uses about this groaning. What does he say? It's the, like the pains of childbirth. He gets this from Jesus, Mark 13. There will be earthquakes in various places, famines, but these are all the beginning of the birth pains, Jesus says. Aren't you so glad that's the analogy? You ever been on the maternity ward or the birthing ward at the hospital? I have twice. They have pretty heavy doors to uh, close for each woman to be in that room. Why? Because a lot of pain happens in those rooms. It's painful. It's, at that moment, it's really painful. I heard a comedian say, it's sort of like holding your upper lip and then pulling it over the top of your head. That's what it feels like. But you know what? You know joy's coming in those rooms. Something so beautiful is coming in that room. And that's why Paul and Jesus uses, it is painful. But something beautiful, something unique, something that was in the dark, coming out in the light, something that you can't even imagine is just about ready to happen. And I want you to know, believers, you're in that birth canal and it's going to be painful and there's going to be screaming, but you're going to come out and say, I can't even remember the pain because of the glory that is now set before me. last point of my second sermon here, and I'm not going to do a third, is just these last couple of verses here, 24 and 25, this hope. This is our hope. Now, that's an important word. It's it's mentioned several times here in this text. For in this hope, we were saved. Now, hope that is seen is not hope. Who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we don't see, and, and all that I've been talking about, this is our hope. We, we have it in our mind. But to me, what I want you to circle is this word, these two words in verse 25, we wait. To me, that's maybe the most critical part for somebody in pain. Aren't you so glad it didn't say, so you get to wait? No, Paul knows you can't wait by yourself. You're not going to make it by yourself. You're supposed to be waiting together with someone, 
We are waiting. We are waiting. We are feeling this suffering so that we stand beside each other and we remain hopeful for our future. So that at any given Sunday when 350 people come, somebody is in here in the frame of pain. And they need somebody to stand next to them and sing. And they're not going to sing that Sunday. Because they just don't have it in their heart. They don't have it in their soul. But they need to stand in amongst a a group of people who are saying, this is what we believe. This is our hope. Would you sing for two people this morning? That happened today. We are waiting. We are coming alongside. I've had these conversations with people who say, I'm just in a dark hole. And I just think, I'm just going to jump down in the hole with you. I'm not sure where the hole ends. I don't know if you get out of this hole, but I can stand in the hole with you because we are going to wait together. I'm not going to just let you wait by yourself. We wait, we wait, and we wait patiently because we know we've considered glory. Let's pray. Lord, every person in here has had, will have, some are having this moment of discouragement, this moment of disillusionment, this being disheartened, being disrailed by suffering. And the Apostle Paul helps every, every soul here to say, I know, Jesus knows. And here's how you stand. Here's when the wave swallows your life, when it breaks your dream in half and you feel like you're drowning, you can sing. You can sing because you can trust in Jesus. Would you strengthen our souls with this message? Would you help us identify people that we can stand next to and sing for two? And wait patiently together on the glory that is coming at us at great speed. And we'll wipe away every tear and there will be no more pain. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.